Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. We've got a great episode this week. Uh, We've got a couple research review segments where we look at the effects of high protein diets on kidney function. Also a research review looking at the effects of dietary cholesterol intake on training adaptations. We then do a question and answer segment where we talk a lot about central nervous system fatigue. And for some reason, we had plenty of whale related content this week. As always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. And today I'm joined by a very special, very temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Greg, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing quite well. Uh, We've got a lot of stuff to get to today. But before we do that, uh, just a quick reminder to listeners, be sure to join our Facebook group. Be sure to join our subreddit and be sure to join in on the newsletter email list. If you are interested in uh, signing up for any of those, the uh, the links are in the description of today's episode. I also want to sell out very quickly before we get into today's content. So selling out segments in the past, I've talked about um, using BulkSupplements.com uh, for all your supplement needs, typing in code SBSPOD in all caps when you check out to save 5%. Up to this point, my marketing strategy has been to focus on the considerable wealth that one could build with that 5% savings. But, uh, you know, realistically, our listeners, it's an altruistic bunch. And I don't know if that messaging is really getting through to them. So I want to take a different different approach this week. So are you familiar with 5% Nutrition, the Uh, supplement company? I don't think so. Uh, It's Rich Piana. Oh. (laughs) his, His company. Oh, man. R.I.P. to Rich. I had, uh, how long ago was that? Like two or three years? I had completely, I'd completely forgotten about 5% nutrition. So the, the website's still going strong and they've got something about the 5% lifestyle. And the way they put it is being willing to sacrifice what the other 95% of the population won't do in pursuit of your goals. So what I want, I want to frame our messaging differently. I want to ask our listeners, are you willing to sacrifice the extra 95% of your money to personally prop up the Stronger by Science Empire? (laughs) I can't answer that question for you. You have to look within yourself. Okay. All right, Greg, let's go. uh, Let's move on to the good news segment. What do we got today? Uh, Yeah. So um, I found a story about a dog that... uh, you know, wasn't in good shape to begin with. Uh, it was adopted. Uh, the people that found it, it was still a puppy and pretty much on the verge of death, which is very much not the situation you want a dog to be in. Um, but it turns out this dog has uh, a very keen nose and an exceptionally high toy drive. So the dog's name is Eba. Uh, now lives somewhere on the West Coast. They found her in uh, in Sacramento. And so uh, they're putting this dog's high toy drive and good nose to use for whale conservation. Um, so where this dog currently lives, there's a pod of orca whales that are apparently not in great shape and a key piece of whale conservation is being able to locate their scat uh, or their poop, so they can study, you know, what the whales are eating, and generally if they're in good health or not. Apparently, you can tell that from poop. Um, 
And uh, this dog, Eba, is apparently just very, very good at locating whale poop with her very sensitive nose. Uh, And where Toy Drive comes into this is that, you know, the dog apparently isn't like super keen on finding whale shit, uh, but it likes playing with toys. And so they've learned, like, they've taught the dog to associate, like, you find whale poop, you can play with toys for like 10 minutes. Uh, So that's kind of the compensation structure they're working with uh, for this dog. And uh, yeah, Eba, little rescue dog, uh, helping save the whales. Very good. And I'm going to continue with the animal theme, which has been carried on for several weeks now. Uh, Fiona the hippo at the Cincinnati Zoo celebrated her first birthday. Uh, A lovely cause for celebration. Uh, The Cincinnati Zoo has a special place in my heart growing up as a kid, spent some time there. Uh, And zoos, zoos can be very hit or miss. You know, if you go to a nice, well-funded zoo, it's a lovely experience. The animals are happy. They're treated well. If you go to a a zoo that's not in great shape. It's like one of the worst days of your life. It is not a fun experience, but the Cincinnati zoo has always been really solid. Uh, and yeah, as a kid spent some good times there, uh, it's, it's, uh, they let the little peacocks walk around. So you're walking around, they're not in an exhibit. They're just hanging out with you. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, here at the North Carolina zoo, they used to do that by accident with Canadian geese. Uh, (laughs) And if if you're going to have fowls walking around with you, I'm going to assume peacocks are better zoo companions than Canadian geese. Yeah, they just kind of wanted to show off their cool feathers and hang out. That was pretty much it. Nice. But uh, yeah, Cincinnati Zoo had some bad press with the whole Harambe situation. Oh, that, that was, was Cincinnati? That was Cincinnati. So it, it's good to see Fiona stole the show. And everyone, you know, was like, oh, hey, what a lovely operation. They're running over there. She had her first birthday. There was a party. There was a cake made out of watermelon, which is very fascinating. Um, I've spent a lot of time doing some different culinary creations. I left desserts off the table. Now I've got a lot of creative juices flowing. I'm thinking, how might I arrange fruit such that they are essentially, I don't know, a cheesecake? I mean, there's there's a lot sure, of ways I can not? go with that. So. Keep an eye out for that. That's going to be my next re- uh, batch of recipes is probably going to be just saying that fruit is dessert. Oh, speaking of which, uh, I guess this is kind of good newsy. Um, Eric, I actually need to thank your girlfriend live on the air. Uh, last night, uh, my wife and I, Lindsay, we started watching The Great British Baking Show, which your girlfriend has been recommending to us for months. Uh the only thing I can say is she should have been more insistent with the recommendation because honestly, that's the most delightful fucking show I've ever seen. It's awesome. I don't know. There's not enough backstabbing. There's not enough yelling and, and fighting. Well, I mean, to, to each their own. Yeah, I, I like the old uh, the Gordon Ramsay approach to <laughs> cooking. You know, if nobody's crying, nobody's cooking. Have you seen, um, have, have you ever seen a super cut of like Gordon Ramsay's British shows versus American shows. Cause like no. he, he does also do food competitions on British television. Uh, and generally like the premise of it is very similar as well. But, and, and I think also, God, I'm forgetting which show it was. Cause he's had like a dozen at this point, but one of his shows uh, simultaneously aired in both America and great Britain. Um, 
and just like the the way it was cut and the editing of it just turned it into two completely different programs uh like the american version was just all like people screwing up and gordon ramsay swearing and uh like you know music that indicates that something bad is currently happening or about to happen and the british version of the same show is just like oh here's some very competent cooks cooking things generally pretty well sometimes they mess up and gordon gives them pointers but it, it, it i mean like he was still much more uh critical and aggressive than mary berry is um but like just the whole vibe is completely different apparently american audiences are just really into British people being assholes. <laughs> but the, I mean, the formula worked for American Idol. You know, why why ruin it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, let's move on. We got uh, feats of strength. Yeah, so um, only have one this week. Uh, so a 16-year-old lifter named Malik Troilet um, from France. So I'm probably mispronouncing that name horribly. Um, he recently put up a gym total of 705 kilos or 1554 pounds at a body weight of 82 kilos or 182 pounds, um, which is really strong regardless of how old someone is at 16. That's crazy. So, uh, that would put him second all time in that age and weight division. Um, so the current record is 708 kilos, so three kilos off of that. Um, but the thing about teenagers, I don't think a lot of people know this. Generally, you just get stronger naturally from, uh, you know, puberty. Uh, so this kid's 16. He's probably going to take the record uh, before he turns 18. Very, very strong, though. Very impressive lifting. Good stuff. All right, so we've got uh, a couple research review segments today. So I've got one and you've got one. My research review segment is about the effects of high-protein diets on kidneys. And uh, before I get into it, I just want to be totally transparent. Probably the worst-kept secret in the world, exercise physiologists avoid renal stuff like the plague. (laughs) We don't like it. We understand it's important. You'd rather have kidneys than not have kidneys Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of being a human being. But it's like, so back in the day, universities operated in person and you'd have to be there and give a lecture. Every guest lecture I've ever heard of when, when someone's trying to teach physiology in an exercise department, the guest lecture, you are always going to go teach their kidney unit. They, They will never be like, Hey, can you come teach my students about the heart or skeletal muscle, they're like, no, I like that stuff. If you ever do a guest lecture, you're either teaching about the kidneys or the lungs, and that's it. So it's the number one guest uh, guest lecture topic by a mile because nobody wants to deal with the intricacies of kidney function because it's complicated. Kidneys are, are pretty complicated. So I, I got to tell you, um, I think in terms of like anatomy and physiology, I think I may have learned uh, kidney like renal physiology better than like pretty much any other organ system because my a and p2 professor uh just really had a thing for kidneys um and the reason for that he he was way more transparent about this than i wish he would have been but uh he apparently just had like a huge history of kidney stone issues uh and also was just like really into learning about anything related to urine because he also was way more transparent about this than I would have wanted him to be. 
apparently had a fucking prostate the size of a cantaloupe uh (laughs) told us about that the first day of class which i didn't need to know about but anyway uh he knew a lot about kidneys because uh that was that was something that mattered a lot to him as a person and so uh yeah a and p2 we really really got into the kidneys and he had way more kidney related anecdotes than I think any of us wanted to hear, but I think that helped like sear the information into our minds a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you didn't protectively block out of your mind, (laughs) you you really retained. Uh, No, I mean, that's good. A lot of exercise physiology professors got into it because they're really into cranking up your VO2 max, getting strong, getting muscular. Not a lot of people who focus on the kidney Uh, and the kidney, like I said, very complicated, but the impetus for this research review segment, uh, someone in the Stronger by Science subreddit, the, the user's name was The One Who Choose, I believe, um, shared a couple studies. There, there, were, there was a, a grouping of two studies and a commentary about those two studies, all within the same issue of a journal. And the journal is Nephrology, uh, Dialysis, and Transplantation. And so all three of the, you know, the two studies and the commentary were basically all looking at the effect of uh, protein intake on kidney function, specifically looking at um, the glomerular filtration rate. So we're, we're going to call that uh, GFR from this point forward because glomerular, not easy to say quickly and many times over. So I didn't mess it up yet and we'll leave it there. So GFR uh, is really the main marker of kidney function that's being looked at in these studies. Now, a couple disclaimers. I am not a medical doctor and I am not a kidney researcher. So, uh, you know, take this stuff with a grain of salt. But I kind of just looked at these studies and said, let's remember the research fundamentals and see what we can make of them here. And honestly, I was so surprised by the divergence between my interpretation and the conclusions or, or like the general premise here. I honestly feel like I'm wrong. Like I feel like I'm missing something, but but we'll we'll get into it and we'll decide if if uh, if I'm just way off base here or if maybe some of these conclusions are overly simplistic. So the first study, do do you first want to just walk through walk people through what GFR is and like why it's relevant in the first place? Well, you're the kidney expert. Why don't you do it? Oh God. Um, Yeah, so basically, like, all of your blood is circulating around your body, uh, and it goes through your kidneys pretty frequently. I think your kidneys filter all of your blood about once every five minutes, give or take. Um, And so the you have, like, little contraptions, basically, within your kidneys called glomeruli. uh, And... As your blood is going through your kidneys, it goes into little capillaries and basically like everything, like a lot of the stuff in your blood gets forced into the glomeruli uh, and then from there it's filtered. So basically the way the kidneys work is pretty much everything is forced from your blood into the glomeruli and then as all of that stuff passes through the glomeruli, it's uh, reabsorbed back into your blood if it needs to be or if it doesn't need to be it filters out and then goes into your urine and you excrete it Uh, and so gfr is basically just a measure of the rate at which things are being processed through the glomeruli as your blood is filtered through your kidneys theoretically 
But uh, this first study by G and colleagues, they, they had over 9,000 subjects. It was more of an epidemiology type study. Mean age of participants was 52 years. In this particular study, whenever you look at epidemiological approaches to this, they usually use estimated glomerular filtration rate, so the estimated GFR. And in some cases, which is the case in this first study, it's essentially purely a measure of serum creatinine and age. So they take your serum creatinine, they put your age into this big equation, and they get your GFR. Now, obviously, that's whenever you're looking at a study like this, you don't have to just say, what is the construct we're talking about, but literally what is being measured. And so in this case, we're talking specifically about serum creatinine, which is impacted by the intake of animal protein. I mean, if, if you have a you know really large increase in your intake of animal protein, your serum creatinine is going to go up fully independent of kidney function. Um, and then, of course, creatinine is affected by several other things as well. Activity level is one of them acutely. So that's a huge caveat to keep in mind before you even get into the details of the study is that we're really just looking at a rough estimate of G GFR based on serum creatinine. Now, uh, GFR also goes down um, with age, naturally, even if your kidneys are functioning the way totally normal, healthy kidneys function. So if we're talking about somebody that's 20 to 29, GFR is probably going to be about 116 or so. Uh, 30 to 39, we're talking about 107. And then it starts to really decline decade over decade. And we're talking about each decade seeing reductions of six, eight, maybe 10 units uh, per decade. Okay, so about one or two units per year, roughly. And, and it's not a linear relationship. The older we get, GFR really starts to, to drop off. And that's, that's what we sign up for with aging. Um, when we talk about chronic kidney disease, which is where a lot of the protein research, that's really what they're trying to make a lot of inferences about is your risk of developing chronic kidney disease. Usually you don't start worrying about that until uh, GFR gets below 60. So, so like I said, younger folks, it's usually up 90s, 100 and above. Uh, and then once it starts getting below 60, we're talking about chronic kidney disease. Once it starts getting below 30, we're talking about really getting concerned about kidney function. And then if you're below 15, we're talking about end stage renal failure at that point. Um, now, it would be inappropriate to say that you always want GFR to be higher. So there is something called uh, hyperfiltration, which is when the number is actually a little bit too high. And one of the reasons you might be concerned about that is, you know, theoretically, if you're in this state of hyperfiltration, that can actually directly damage the kidneys uh, in a, what, what a lot of papers say is uh, an irreversible manner. So I don't know, there's probably like, you know, if, I'm sure researchers are arguing over whether or not it's reversible. I have no idea. But the consensus that you see in the papers is, that damage tends to be irreversible. And so if we are in this state of really extreme hyperfiltration and we're damaging the kidney, then we'll start to see GFR actually going down as kidney function becomes impaired due to that, that predisposing damage, okay? So, uh, or the, the preceding damage. So uh, when we look at this first study by, uh, by G and colleagues, uh, like I said, the, the mean age was 52 years. And when we look at someone who's 50 to 59 years old, we would expect GFR about 93, give or take, just based on, you know, a table I found on the internet. 
surely it wouldn't lead me astray. But um, <laughs> in this study, the, the baseline values, they, they divided up the sample into first, second, third, and fourth quartile. So the lowest 25% of protein intakes, and then the second lowest, and then the you know second highest, and then the highest uh, protein intakes. Looking at those quartiles, the baseline uh, GFR, 93.7, Now, theoretically, we're looking at people who are in these quartiles because that is their habitual intake. It's not like they are being assigned to something new once, you know, this isn't like an intervention where we're going to mess with their protein intake. So just right off the bat, we're talking about people in their 50s and every single quartile here looks really, really normal in terms of GFR. So, so that's one thing to, to look at is right off the bat, you know, when a lot of people ask these questions about protein intake, the root uh, impetus for the question is by eating a high protein diet, am I screwing myself over in terms of kidney function? Just looking at the baseline numbers and not looking any deeper, the highest quartile, the lowest quartile, the middle quartiles, on average, everybody's looking pretty okay. Now, um, in terms of some actual uh, kind of findings of the study, you know, the, the researchers noted that the, uh, the mean rate of GFR decline uh, annually was faster as quartiles of protein intake increased. So the higher quartiles had more rapid reductions in GFR year over year than the lower quartiles. Um, but when we look at the actual mean rate of decline in these quartiles, you know, first to fourth, 2.01, 2.05, 2.19, 2.34. These are pretty similar numbers. Uh, you would not look at that difference from going from, you know, 2.01 to 2.05 quartile to quartile and say, man, that second quartile would really benefit from, from <laughs> dropping the, and even at the extremes of it, 2.01 to 2.34, like I said, I mean, just with with typical aging, those are very normal-ish looking numbers as far as I can tell. Not an expert clinician, but those seem pretty pretty similar. And I, I found in a, a completely separate paper, they were talking about using some of these creatinine-based metrics for, um, you know, for looking at GFR. And they laid out an example. So in this other paper, they mentioned, you, hypothetically, you've got a 60-year-old man with a serum creatinine of 0.7 milligrams per deciliter, a 0.1 milligram per deciliter change would result in a 13.6% change in the estimated GFR value. So it might change that GFR value from 88.5 to, uh, to 76.5. That is an enormous drop. And so when we're looking at something as, as variable as creatinine, and we're looking at these really small differences from quartile to quartile, that's probably an important thing to keep in mind. And the, the the main point that these authors in this other paper were trying to make is that it's really hard for a clinician to really detect a meaningful change with this with these creatinine-based uh, uh, GFR numbers just because the noise of, of fluctuating creatinine can be so immense. One other thing that just jumps out to me a little bit just looking at these raw numbers uh, is in that table you have here in the outline showing that basically decade over decade, uh, once people reach 50 years old, their estimated GFR drops like eight to 10 points per decade, something yeah. like that. Um, 
in all of these groups, it's saying like two points per year. So it's basically saying that like people in all four quartiles, like in this data set, were losing estimated GFR at basically twice the rate that would be predicted by age alone. That's a good point. Um, When you look at that rate of reduction, it is a little bit larger than you would expect. Um, Not astronomically so, but but it it is larger than you'd expect. That's a good point. I'm not going to look too far into that just because, um, you know, the, the GFR measurement itself does tend to be fairly imprecise and fairly fickle. Um, so, you know, if, if it was, you know, 10 times larger than we would expect, that's where I, where I would look at it and say, what in the world happened here? These numbers are a little bit larger than we would expect, but I'm kind of comfortable accepting them at face value and kind of moving forward with the overall interpretation of the paper. But yeah, so looking at those annual rates of, of decline, you know, 2, 2.3, not really huge differences from, from quartile to quartile. Um, now, a- another thing that they mentioned in this paper by G and colleagues is that the highest quartile was associated with uh, a higher risk of, of rapid GFR decline. So um, they kind of created their operational definition, they, they set a threshold and they said, if your annual uh, reduction in GFR is greater than, you know, this cutoff, then we're going to say you have a rapid decline in GFR. Uh, so, th- so they said that the, the highest quartile was associated with a, a 1.3 fold increased risk uh, of experiencing this rapid drop in GFR. But that was based on a model with a bunch of different covariates in the mix. When you look at just a really simplistic view, what were the raw number of cases uh, of who had this rapid GFR decline from quartile to quartile? In the first quartile, 17.7% of participants met that threshold for a rapid drop uh, of GFR. In the second quartile, 15.1%, third quartile, 15.4%, fourth quartile, 15.6%. So just based on a, a really crude look at it and say which quartile in which quartile was the prevalence of this rapid GFR drop uh, highest, it was actually the first quartile. And, and it wasn't until you start really throwing a bunch of other covariates into the model do we start to see that things start shifting a little bit and, and it looks more like the higher quartile number is experiencing more of this reduction in GFR. So I think it's always critical whenever you look at these epi type papers, it's not to say that that there's no room for these covariates in these epidemiological models, but you have to be really cautious about forgetting that the raw numbers exist and forgetting that the crude model exists with no covariates. Yeah, I mean, like ultimately, if you're interested in the effects of protein intake on a particular outcome and you have enough going into your model that like literally anything other than protein intake is what's driving what your model spits out. Like it's not necessarily bad, but like it's worth at least taking a peek at it to see what's going on under the hood. Yeah. I mean, so I've done an an epidemiology, epidemiology type project before, and we presented the crude model with no covariates. And then we presented the model with the the covariates that we thought were, were meaningful would be, you know, important to include and the actual effect estimates changed a little bit 
But I mean, we're talking about an increased risk of, oh, it's in this model, it was 31%. In this model, it was 26%. We're not talking about creating a linear relationship where once there was none. Yeah. And so that's a, whenever you see a model where the, the crude numbers, like, like I said, getting back to the, the just original question, if I eat a high protein diet, am I likely to have, you know, this really wonky GFR number? Based on everything we're seeing so far in the crude numbers, this higher quartile group is not any worse off than any of the other quartiles. And I mean, based on this particular outcome, the highest prevalence was in the lowest quartile group. So um, another thing that came up in the paper, uh, and this was the, the high number that tends to get a lot of attention, they, they looked at the relative risk of having hyperfiltration uh, based on what quartile you were in. And they, they noted that the, uh, the relative risk of having hyperfiltration was about three and a half times, uh, you know, 3.5 fold higher in the highest quartile group compared to the lowest quartile group for protein. Uh, but again, getting back to the raw numbers, which is an important starting point, whenever you look at this type of epi, uh, epi research, the prevalence of hyperfiltration, first quartile to fourth, 5.2%, 4%, 5.2%, and 6%. So yes, the, the highest percentage value was in the highest quartile, but you can't really talk about the alarming increase from 5.2 to 6 without talking about the larger reduction from 5.2 to 4 from the first quartile to the second. Right? And and so when we look at... Yeah, what, what's even going on there? Because it, it looks to me like a approximately 1.15 fold increase in risk not 3.48 well is is that also just like a bunch of other shit going into the going into the model it's a bunch of other shit going into the model M making a 15 percent increase risk approximately start looking like a 248 percent increase risk yes holy shit so that that's why i always say like Look at the crude did, numbers. Did they talk about what, what was going into it? Like, is it just the fact that, like, the lowest protein intake group was also doing a bunch of other unhealthy shit? So it's like, when we adjust for that, ultimately, it looks better. So both of these papers had a number of different models with a variety of different covariates, um, which is pretty common. They'll say, here's model one where we put in these things. Here's model two where we put in all those things. And I'll be honest. I'm not a, a GFR expert to the to the extent that I would say, oh, I know exactly which covariate in the model is 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 interfering with this relationship between you know protein intake and the incidence of uh, or, or the prevalence of hyperfiltration. But again, everyone who asks this question is asking, if I'm a person who eats high protein, am I inherently screwed? And looking at these numbers, you don't start to see anything alarming until you're like, okay, I understand you eat a lot of protein, but what's your education status? <laughs> you know, yeah. how many units of alcohol do you drink per week? But ultimately, that's, that's not what anyone in the fitness space is asking. They're mm -hmm. asking, are people who eat a lot of protein inherently worse off? And I think the raw numbers are as helpful, if not more helpful for answering that question. Because when someone asks that question, they're not saying, hey, I eat a lot of protein. Also, here's my income. Here's my education status. I smoked for a while when I was younger, but not anymore. And I have seven units of alcohol per week. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not what anyone's asking. Yeah, they're not like, yeah, what if I triple my protein intake, but like stop using a bunch of heroin? Like, yeah. what, what's that going to do? Exactly. 
Um, and, and so looking at hyperfiltration, um, you know, when, when we look at, uh, they, they kind of separated out these groups and said, um, you know, uh, here's the hyperfiltration group. Here's the, the group that doesn't have hyperfiltration. Uh, the, the mean reduction in GFR annually was about 3.1 per year in the hyperfiltration group. And their, their intake of protein was, was, uh, 1.07 grams per kilogram of, of ideal body weight. When they, when they looked at the non hyperfiltration group, instead of a 3.1 reduction per year, it was only 2.1 per year. Um, but you know, their mean protein intake was 1.02 grams per kilogram of ideal weight. So, you know, we're talking about this theoretical idea that having a high protein intake is really meaningfully influencing your risk of whether or not you fall in the hyperfiltration group or not. But when we look at the mean intake from one group to the other, it's 1.07 versus 1.02. Very, very similar mean and mean values. So, Again, you, you look at these numbers in totality and where you might find a particular model that, that gives you this particular risk elevation that as a percentage looks scary, just looking at the entire body of evidence in this paper, I don't see enough here that w would lead me to believe that high protein intakes are inherently scary, are inherently driving a huge reduction in GFR year over year or are inherently dictating whether or not you're in the, in the hyperfiltration group. So uh, another thing that they brought up was that they, they did contextualize it a little bit. And they said, when we looked at the hyperfiltration group versus the non-hyperfiltration group, um, the, the highest quartile in those with hyperfiltration seemed to be particularly bad in terms of the rate of, of decline in, in uh, GFR over year, year over year. And so, so they're basically saying, if you, if you have hyperfiltration, you, the, the higher protein intake intakes do seem to be having a pretty notable impact on your rate of decline year over year. Whereas if you don't have hyperfiltration, maybe it wasn't quite as impactful. I wanted to dig into that deeper because the odds ratio was pretty high. It looked like a big number. So the, the, the odds ratio was 3.35, um, but the confidence interval was like 1.07 to 10.5. That, that's a very uncertain estimate. I mean, that, that's a very wide confidence interval. So I wanted to dig in deeper and really the, the, um, the details for this particular comparison came down to a figure and it was like th figure 3A versus 3B. And in the published paper, they're literally the same thing. So like th there was like a editorial mistake or something, but I wanted to compare this figure to that figure, this group to that group, but I'm almost certain that they were just literally identical figures. So, so you can't really dig deeper on that one. You just kind of have to take their word for it. Um, so that, that was the first study. That was pretty much uh, what the results looked like. Um, with the right covariates added into the model, some things that looked a little bit scary, but I mean, when you look at the raw values, did, did the people who eat a lot of protein seem worse off at baseline or over time? From my perspective, not really. Now, the second study was by S. Meyer and colleagues, uh, had about 2,200 2, uh, patients who had previously had uh, myocardial infarction, uh, ha had a heart attack. And uh, the mean age of this group was 69. So nice. already we're looking at a, a special population, people who have had myocardial infarction and 
a, a much older sample on average than the previous study. Um, one thing I, I liked about this study is they used a different method for, for estimating GFR. They used one that was based on serum levels of cystatin C rather than creatinine alone. Um, and they did a couple different analysis. One was just based on the cystatin C levels. The other was a, a different equation that uses creatinine and cystatin C. And overall, the, the differences between those two different approaches seem pretty, pretty negligible within this particular sample. So uh, one thing I found interesting was uh, in the introduction of this paper, they, they mentioned that for post-myocardial infarction patients, uh, the annual rate of, of kidney function decline per year is usually about two units in, when we're talking about uh, GFR. So we're, we're expecting kind of like, you know, two year over year um, if we pretend it's linear. It's not quite linear, but that's kind of what we're going in. That, that's the expectation, the expectation that we're, we're going in with. Now, the results, uh, their, their analysis indicated that... Um, for each incremental increase in daily protein intake of 0.1 grams per kilogram of ideal body weight, the, uh, the additional reduction in uh, their, the an, uh, annual GFR change was a reduction of 0.12 units per year. Uh, so the higher your protein intake, you know, the, the, the more of a reduction you'd see in that value. But when they stratified it, so they looked at patients who their protein intake was greater than 1.2 grams per kilogram, versus those who were under 0.8 grams per kilogram. They found that the annual rate of decline was about two times faster in the higher protein group. But when you look at the, the actual rate of decline, it was minus 1.6 per year versus minus 0.84 per year. And so, you know, with the previous study, you mentioned those numbers were looked a little bit higher than we would expect. In this particular study, both of these seem to be lower than what we kind of signed up for on the front end. Like we were kind of expecting a reduction of, of two per year. And it looks like the high protein group and the low protein group in both instances, we were under that, that two number. So it, it doesn't look like the high protein group was like, wow, look at this elevation and risk. It's more, this low protein group seems to have a really low rate of decline year over year. Uh, you know, in this particular population, post-myocardial infarction, you'd expect it to be about twice the general population. And I mean, this is actually lower than you'd expect, uh, you know, in, in the typical population, I think, uh, or, or at least very much on par with it. So um, when, we, when we look at the baseline GFR levels uh, stratified by intake, so they had these four different groups that they kind of split up less than 0.8 grams per kilogram, 0.8 to 1, 1 to 1.2, and then greater than 1.2 grams per kilogram. Um, you know, looking at the numbers, the, the, the GFR rates, 77, 80, 83, 85. Again, within a tight range, very similar to what we'd expect as being pretty normal based on their age. You know, like I said, this was an older sample. Th those were the numbers based on cystatin C. When they use the other method that incorporates cre creatinine values as well, we're talking about 75, 77, 79, 82. So a little bit higher in, in the higher protein quartiles, but everybody looks pretty normal and we're not seeing a, a spread of numbers that would seem to be clinically super relevant. And that brings me to another thing, which is when I was looking through a lot of this renal uh, literature, it's, it's hard to tell when they want the number to be higher or lower. So in, in this instance, we're talking about the rate of decline year over year, right? 
And these are older folks and the highest numbers are, are observed when we look at the raw numbers in the people with the highest protein intake. And so a lot of these papers are framed as we want to... In terms of like baseline GFR, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. baseline GFR. So a, a lot of these papers are written w- with the, the kind of general vibe that we want to keep it high because it, it goes down you know, year over year. But then, like I said, we also worry about hyperfiltration. We don't want it to be super, super high. And what I found really interesting is a nice way to put it. I've seen protein papers in this kidney area where they see this clinically clinically like pretty meaningless increase in GFR in response to protein. And they say, oh man, that's bad because if we extrapolate that, I mean, that's a one-way ticket to hyperfiltration and then they're going to damage their kidney and then GFR is going to just fall off a cliff. So if it goes up a little bit within the normal range, they kind of catastrophize about it. But then if it goes down a little bit within the normal range, they're like, oh, we're too late. They're already, you know, we're seeing them in this precipitous downfall. Their kidney's already shot. It's just a matter of time until it's end stage renal failure. And so I, I kind of don't know what you want here. <laughs> like we're seeing a lot of numbers that are in pretty normal ranges for people's age and whether it goes up a tiny bit or down a tiny bit, I've seen papers indicating that both are a disaster, which just doesn't really make sense to me. Well, it, it sounds like having your cake and eating it too. Like you can, uh, you, you can open up a data set and if your hypothesis is that higher protein intakes are bad, as long as higher protein, higher protein intakes are different from lower protein intakes in either direction, you could frame that as a bad thing. And again, with magnitudes that are tiny and don't, in some cases, don't show up at all until you load the model with covariates. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I'm not saying that the, uh, the researchers uh, are doing anything wrong, but I'm saying from, from an outsider who said, oh, I guess kidney research exists. I open up the page and I'm like, well, what do you guys want it to do? <laughs> like if it goes up a little bit or goes down a little bit, you're like, yep, I knew it. Protein kidney failure. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe a listener can inform me about something I'm missing out on there or just not picking up on. Well, I, I mean, I think one of the things we can fairly confidently say is if we're seeing if we're seeing not much of a relationship between theoretically the two variables we care about, protein intake and GFR, if we're not seeing much of a relationship between those two variables and then suddenly there becomes a strong relationship between those two variables when you put a bunch of other covariates into the model, what that necessarily tells you is those other covariates put into the model are not necessarily more likely to cause changes in GFR, but are at least way, way more strongly associated with changes in GFR than protein intakes are. Yeah, at minimum, they're having a huge moderating effect on protein's impact. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that the, the protein viewed purely in isolation clearly is not driving this, you know, enormous, uh, unstoppable effect on GFR values, mm-hmm. right? So in th- this particular paper, again, th- this is uh, an- another instance where we look at the crude model with no covariates versus the, the, the model with covariates. The crude model when they were looking at these four different groups, lowest to highest protein intake, uh, this is the annual rate of GFR reduction. Minus 1.17, minus 1.28, 
minus 1.44, minus 1.26. The highest quartile protein group, or, or not quartile, but the highest protein intake that was divided up with these thresholds based on grams per kilogram had the second lowest rate of reduction. Like just based on the raw numbers, the rate of reduction was worse in the second and third group rather than the fourth group with the highest protein intake. Now, this is wild when you look at there and, and the, the P for the trend there that basically said, hey, do we have this kind of linear increase? The P value was 0.5, not 0.05, 0.5 in a sample of, I mean, thousands of people. Right. I mean, if you yeah, have like, any like 2,200. Yeah. If, if you have I mean, a sample of 2,200, you do not need a, a big effect in order to get a low P value. Yeah. Now, model two in this study, they had a number of different models with different groups of covariates, but model two for the same numbers, just adding the covariates in, when we look at the lowest to the highest protein uh, groups and we're looking at the annual rate of GFR reduction, now we're looking at minus 0.79 minus 1.12, minus 1.47, and minus 1.63. So all of a sudden, it becomes this huge linear relationship. Keep in mind, the difference in that crude model between the the best and the worst rate of decline was like, I don't know, about 0.3. Adding in the covariates, the value in the first group drops by over 0.3. And the value... Uh, or the magnitude, I should say, gets smaller. Um, so it, it, it's a, a smaller reduction year over year. And then the change that we see in the highest quartile group, again, is over 0.3 in terms of the magnitude. I mean, we're introducing changes to these estimates that are greater than the entire spread from the crude model. Those are huge changes in the I, effect I, estimates. I, I mean, essentially what they're saying is like, other than eating low protein, People who eat low protein do everything possible to fuck up their kidneys. And other than eating high protein, people who eat high protein do everything possible to preserve their kidneys. Like that, that's pretty much the only way that you could wind up with a shift in trend that extreme, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, wrapping things up here, I know we, we just went through a long segment of reading a lot of numbers, which is, you know, as far as I can tell, optimal radio. But. <laughs> But I mean, people ask about this all the time and, and I think it, it helps to actually take a deep dive into it. But, you know, wrapping things up here, most of our listeners want to know, most people in the fitness world, will eating a high protein diet necessarily impair my kidney function? And I don't see how you look at these results and say, oh, definitely. Um, when you, When we look at the raw values from these studies without the addition of, hey, you know, what, what's your income? What's your education status? How many drinks do you have per week and all this other stuff? When we just look at the raw values, the people who eat a lot of protein don't seem to be any worse off than the people who eat, who eat lower amounts of protein. Um, the, the, the rates that we see in these papers for GFR reduction from quartile to quartile or from group to group, we don't really see big differences when, when we look at those raw values. So obviously, if you have a kidney issue, you should listen to your doctor. Uh, there are doctors that specialize in kidney function. That is where you get your information from. If you have a kidney condition, pathology, disease, etc. cetera. Um, and, and I should be clear that there are some kidney conditions for which a high protein diet is contraindicated. It is inadvisable. It will exacerbate redu pre-existing reductions in kidney function. 
But what we see, you know, based on the literature I've looked at for, for people who have, you know, good kidney function, who have healthy kidneys with no underlying pathology, we might see some functional adaptation and some morphological adaptation when you adopt a high protein diet. We might see small changes within the normal range when it comes to GFR and when it comes to, like I said, the actual morphology of the kidney. But adaptation is not always necessarily pathological. There are plenty of adaptations our body makes that are simply to adjust to what we are doing. So the fact that we see a little fluctuation of some metric within the normal range is not necessarily reason to panic. Um, so for people with otherwise healthy kidneys, these data just are not convincing enough to me that, that I would think, oh, you need to abandon a high protein diet. Um, but like I said, if, if kidney function is a concern of yours, you know, go see your doctor, find someone who, who is really good with kidneys. It's, it's good whenever you go see a, a doctor to um, feel them out a little bit in, in terms of like, hey, uh, Ha you're doing a creatinine based test. Have you considered that I'm very muscular and I eat a lot of animal protein and I lifted six hours ago? Like it's good to make sure that your doctors seem pretty sharp and on top of things. But, uh, but generally speaking, when you have a health concern like this, go see a doctor, uh, and, and ultimately defer to them. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, like if you want to simplify that process, just ask them how much they bench. Like if it's yeah. anything below 225, find a new doctor. Absolutely. And, that, and that's kilos. Yeah. Um, all right, Greg, you had a research review about uh, cholesterol, right? Yeah. So uh, we're doing everything possible in this episode of the podcast to make sure we get shut down by, by the American Medical Association. Uh, so <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about uh, cholesterol and whether dietary cholesterol intake might help you get jacked. So the thing that uh, kind of precipitated me looking into this is there was a paper that was uh, EPUB to head of print a while back uh, that was finally published in an issue um, by Begary and colleagues titled Comparison of Whole Egg versus Egg White Ingestion During 12 Weeks of Resistance Training on Skeletal Muscle Regulatory Markers in Resistance Trained Men. Uh, and so... Basically, what they did is they had subjects lift for 12 weeks, uh, split them into two groups. One of the groups uh, consumed six egg whites after all of their workouts, uh, and the other group consumed three whole eggs after their workouts. So uh, that should be roughly matched for protein intake, uh, but you know, one of the groups is only consuming egg whites, and the other one is consuming yolks and everything that is in egg yolks, including a lot of dietary cholesterol. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of, you know, kind of headline results that people would care about, things looked pretty similar overall. Um, so they assessed changes in fat mass. Uh, they looked at skeletal muscle mass, which I believe they were assessing uh, via bioelectrical impedance, which isn't particularly great, but whatever, it is what it is. Uh, and they were looking at changes in squat and bench press strength. So the only significant difference between groups in terms of those outcomes were that uh, fat mass decreased to a significantly greater extent in the group consuming whole eggs after their workouts, uh, but it wasn't a particularly large difference. So the whole egg group lost about two kilos of fat, versus about 1.1 kilos in the egg white group. Um, the differences for every other measure weren't 
statistically significant, but they did all kind of lean in favor of consuming the whole eggs versus the egg whites. Um, so for skeletal muscle mass, which again, take with a grain of salt because it wasn't assessed uh, the best way possible, we all know. Gold standard is the bod pod. Um, the increase in the whole egg group was 3.4 kilos versus 2.8 in the egg white group. Uh, increase in bench press strength also it was like a couple kilos better in the whole egg group. Uh, kind of low, but not super low p-value, about 0.2. So probably not worth really reading into very much. For the squat, uh, there was it, it was actually like relatively close to being... Uh, statistically significantly different between groups, p-value of about 0.06. Uh, but it seems like the groups had relatively homogeneous increases because the actual raw difference wasn't particularly large. It was about two or three kilos. Um, so anyway, not much to write home about uh, in this particular study. So, you know, if if you wanted to, to go with like the traditional interpretation of p-values, you would say like, oh, maybe consuming whole eggs might have a slight beneficial effect on body composition, uh, but really for strength gains and hypertrophy, not a ton of difference, but you could also look at it and say like, well, maybe there's some other stuff slightly leaning in favor of consuming whole eggs. Um, and so the, the reason I wanted to talk about this study isn't necessarily because the results of this study itself are all that exciting, uh, but because it is... As far as I'm aware, the first longitudinal study looking at the effects of either whole egg intake or uh, cholesterol intake, um, like th the effects of those things on strength gains or hypertrophy in healthy young people. However, there is some you know, potentially interesting uh, longitudinal research on older people and acute research on younger people that uh, we can bring to bear on the question of uh, whether cholesterol intake might affect strength gains and hypertrophy. So one thing to note is that uh, when I talk about whole egg consumption or cholesterol consumption, I'm going to be using those two things basically interchangeably. Um, so in some of these studies, the actual intervention being done, the manipulation being done, was having people eat whole eggs versus egg whites or adding whole eggs into their diet. Uh, some of them just looked at kind of normal consumption of dietary cholesterol within people's diets. The thing about that is like if you're going to experimentally study the impact of cholesterol on something, whole eggs are a very good vehicle to give people cholesterol because there's a shitload of cholesterol in egg yolks. Uh, and if you're just looking at kind of cross-sectional cholesterol intake in people's normal diets, that's going to correlate very strongly with whole egg intake because there is certainly dietary cholesterol in other foods, but it's it's present in egg yolks and probably the greatest density of virtually anything in like a normal human diet. Eggs uh, are like nature's cholesterol supplement. Yeah, really the only other thing you could put in that conversation I think are shrimp. Interesting. We'll we'll fact check that. We'll we'll yeah. get to the bottom of it. Um all right, so let's uh let's look at some of the other whole egg and cholesterol related literature. So there was a 2017 study by Van Vliet and colleagues. That's not Fred Van Vliet, who plays for the Toronto Raptors. This is a different Van Vliet. 
Um, and this one got shared around kind of in the quote-unquote evidence-based social media space when it was published. The title is Consumption of Whole Eggs Promotes Greater Stimulation of Post-Exercise Muscle Protein Synthesis Than Consumption of Isonitrogenous Amounts of Egg Whites in Young Men. Uh, and so this was a crossover study. Uh, they had 10 resistance-trained men um, put them through a workout. And post-workout, they either gave them whole eggs or egg whites, crossover study. So the same subjects did both conditions. Uh, and both, both conditions were matched for 18 grams of protein. Uh, they looked at a whole bunch of different just general anabolic signaling markers, and all of those were more or less similar between groups. Uh, but they also looked at muscle protein synthesis in the five hours following the workout, and it was considerably greater when the subjects consumed the whole eggs instead of the egg whites. So with whole egg consumption, there was an increase in muscle protein synthesis of approximately 2.7 fold versus about 1.9 fold increase with egg whites. Um, so one potential explanation for that is like, well, there's a lot of stuff in whole eggs that isn't in egg whites and uh, total caloric intake was greater when they were consuming the whole eggs. And that's true. However, if you're looking at relatively acute muscle protein synthesis, the additional calories in whole eggs come predominantly from fat that's present in the yolks. And generally fat content slows down the digestion and absorption of protein. And so if you're looking at relatively acute muscle protein synthesis, you might actually hypothesize that by adding some fat into the mix, you might see lower rates, like lower cumulative rates of MPS over just a five-hour window. Um, so it, I, I think it's interesting and somewhat striking that whole egg intake did promote increases in muscle protein synthesis, even over a relatively short uh, time scale. So let's move on to another study. This one is by Lee and colleagues from 2011. Title is Dietary Cholesterol Effects Skeletal Muscle Protein Synthesis Following Acute Resistance Training. Uh, and this one uh, was just a conference abstract. So uh, there's not really a ton of information about it. And I'm not exactly sure how they did their analysis. Uh, but I'm pretty sure what they did uh, is they had two separate groups of untrained adults so this wasn't a crossover study. Uh, and they had one of the groups of adults um, consume a relatively high dietary cholesterol intake for 10 days prior to a training session. So about 800 milligrams per day of dietary cholesterol. Uh, and another group consume a low cholesterol diet for 10 days prior to a training session. And that was less than 200 milligrams of cholesterol per day. Uh, on the 10th day, both groups did a unilateral training session, and I think essentially what they were doing was comparing rates of muscle protein synthesis in the trained leg versus the untrained leg within each group, and then comparing those differences between groups. Uh, and in this study, they were looking at cumulative rates or cumulative muscle protein synthesis over 22 hours post-training. Uh, so basically for, for like how much how much new muscle protein did they synthesize in a day uh, after the training session? Uh, and what they found is there was a significantly greater difference in muscle protein synthesis between the trained leg and the untrained leg in the high cholesterol group than the low cholesterol group. I didn't see a direct comparison of muscle protein synthesis between groups, but this was interpreted to mean that uh, post-training, the elevation in muscle protein synthesis in the trained tissues 
uh, was basically promoted to a greater extent in subjects who preceded their workout with 10 days of relatively high cholesterol intake. Um, moving on to some, uh, to some longitudinal studies, uh, there was a study by Reichman and colleagues in 2007. I believe this was also only published as a conference abstract. I don't think there's full text for it. Um, but it was actually an RCT, which, again, is weird that this wasn't published because most, most like nutrition and training RCTs do end up getting published. Um, but they had three groups of people. Um, they were older. They were between 50 and 69 years old. One of the groups uh, was assigned to consume zero eggs per day. Uh, so they ended up with a pretty low cholesterol intake, less than 200 milligrams per day. Uh, another group was assigned to consume one egg per day. So they wound up with a relatively moderate cholesterol intake, about 400 milligrams per day. And a third group was assigned to consume three eggs per day. So they wound up with a relatively high cholesterol intake of about 800 milligrams per day. Uh, and all of those were mixed with a standard protein drink. So I think protein intake was equated between groups or was relatively similar between groups. Um, and so what they had them do is train for 12 weeks. They trained three times per week doing eight exercises for basically hypertrophy training. So three sets of eight to 12 reps per exercise. Um, and they basically wanted to see uh, how that would affect accretion of lean mass and also gains in chest press and leg press strength. So what they found is that after the 12 weeks of training, um, the group consuming no eggs increased their lean mass by about 2.5%. The group consuming one egg increased their lean mass by about 0.7%, so basically no change. And the group consuming three eggs increased their lean mass by about 3.6%. So there was a significant difference between one egg and three eggs, but there wasn't a significant difference between zero eggs and three eggs. So there's, there, there, there was a slight trend if you squint just right for maybe the higher cholesterol intake uh, promoting larger increases in lean mass, but that's, that's pretty weak um, because, you know, why wouldn't one egg be better than zero? So I, I wouldn't put much stock in that. Uh, but as far as strength increases go, um, the zero egg and one egg group had relatively similar increases in strength, uh, about a 14% increase in combined chest press and leg press strength in the zero egg group and about an 8% increase in the one egg group. The three egg group, on the other hand, had an increase of about 33% on average. Um, so again, not, not like a clear linear dose response relationship by any means because nominally the one egg group also did worse than the zero egg group, but the three egg group did have um, pretty substantially larger strength increases than the other two groups did. Um, so that's, again, somewhat noteworthy, not, not super, super strong evidence in favor of higher cholesterol intakes, but uh, at least on a nominal basis, the three egg group did tend to do better than the other two groups did. Um, Moving on again, a 2009 study by Igley and colleagues titled Moderately Increased Protein Intake Predominantly from Egg Sources Does Not Influence Whole Body, Regional, or Muscle Composition Responses to Resistance Training in Older People. Uh, so in this study, there were 36 subjects, average age, early 60s, uh, had subjects trained three days per week for 12 weeks. Um, 
And in this one, unfortunately, they weren't just manipulating uh, whole egg or cholesterol intake. Uh, it also had an effect on total protein intake. So there was one group consuming a relatively low protein omnivorous diet. So consuming about 0.9 grams of protein per kilo of body mass per day. Uh, and then another group was consuming a higher but still relatively low protein diet of about 1.2 grams per kilo per day. Uh, and the difference in that protein intake was achieved by adding eggs into the higher uh, protein groups diet. So they wound up with relatively large differences in total cholesterol intake. So the lower protein group was consuming about uh, 213 milligrams of cholesterol per day versus about 610 for the higher protein group. Um, and the big picture results of this study is um, much like the recent paper by Begary that just came out in younger people, there weren't any significant differences between groups for really any of the things that they looked at. Um, but for both gains in lean mass and losses in fat mass, there were non-significant differences that leaned in favor of the group consuming higher protein and higher cholesterol. Um, and they also looked at changes in mean fiber area, so like fiber cross-sectional area. Uh, and again, there wasn't a significant difference between groups in terms of changes in vastus lateralis mean fiber area. Um, but there was an average 3.3% increase in the high-protein, high-cholesterol group and an average 5% decrease in the low-protein, low-cholesterol group. Uh, so again, kind of hard to parse these results. You could either, you know strictly adhere to null hypothesis significance testing and say no significant differences nothing nothing going on here nothing to look at uh, or you could say like in light of some of the other things we've seen maybe there were some slight differences in favor of consuming more cholesterol but again this study unfortunately had the additional confounder of the higher cholesterol group also consuming higher protein. So, you know, it's hard to know if there were differences that the study just was underpowered to detect. It's hard to say whether they were due to cholesterol or due to protein. Uh, and finally, this is probably, uh, this last study is probably the one that gets cited the most in relation to uh, the effects of cholesterol intake on strength and or hypertrophy. Uh, and notably, it is the first study looking at the impact of cholesterol intake on strength and or hypertrophy. Uh, so the title is statins and dietary serum cholesterol are associated, uh, or statins and dietary and serum cholesterol are associated with increased lean mass following resistance training by Reichman and colleagues. Uh, and so this study was not, uh, it wasn't an RCT. Basically what they did um, is they had a group of 49 subjects aged 60 to 69 years old, uh, and they had them trained for 12 weeks. They assessed uh, strength and changes in lean mass, um, and they collected dietary information on them. And after the fact, looked to see um, for people just naturally consuming less cholesterol, like what were their strength and hypertrophy responses relative to people who were just naturally consuming greater amounts of dietary cholesterol. And what they found is that, uh, average dietary cholesterol consumption was like modestly associated with changes in lean mass. Um, 
They say strongly associated in the paper. The R value is like 0.45. I wouldn't call that a strong association. Um, but there was a positive, there was a significant positive association between dietary cholesterol intake and changes in lean mass. Uh, after adjusting for body mass and uh, lean mass levels of the subjects, that R value was slightly stronger, so about 0.5. Uh, the p-values for both of those are less than 0.001, so that's like a not a particularly strong relationship, but a highly significant relationship. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty noteworthy. And they also found uh, that the subjects consuming more protein or consuming more cholesterol weren't really consuming. Uh, substantially different amounts of protein than people consuming less cholesterol. Uh, so that's that's good. Uh, and they also found that higher levels of cholesterol intake were associated with greater strength gains. So the subjects with the highest cholesterol intake, which was um, 7.2 to 10.2 milligrams per kilogram of lean mass per day, uh, had increases in chest press and leg press of about 88% um, versus... Uh, about 41% for the subjects consuming the least dietary cholesterol, which I think was less than 2.7 uh, milligrams per kilogram of lean mass per day. Um, and also they looked at uh, appendicular uh, lean mass gains, and that was also quite a bit greater in the subjects consuming uh, the highest level of cholesterol versus the lowest level. So about an 11.8% increase versus about a 2.6% increase. Um, so th th the results of that study were pretty striking. And in terms of, of raw differences, I think the like there's a figure in the study that you can look at that like shows the lean mass accretion on a per-group basis. And you, you can see these little... Uh, these little uh, histograms, and it's just like, you know, the the lowest cholesterol intake has the smallest histogram, and then it's bigger, and then it's bigger, and then it's the biggest uh, in the group consuming the most cholesterol. In terms of raw differences in lean mass accretion between the highest and lowest um, cholesterol consumption in terms of lean mass gain, it was like basically no change uh, in the group consuming the least cholesterol, and it was... Uh, about like a, a five pound increase, give or take, in the group consuming the highest cholesterol, which is uh, like quite a bit of hypertrophy for subjects who are in their 60s training for just 12 weeks. Uh, and so the results of that paper are, are pretty striking. Um, and so I've seen discourse around cholesterol intake go one of two different ways. One way is that it just doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> there, there seem to be a lot of people who haven't even pondered the question of whether dietary cholesterol intake uh, could affect hypertrophy and or strength gains. And then there are uh, some people I've seen, and, and I myself was previously included in this group, um, who advocate for cholesterol intake potentially being very, very important for hypertrophy and strength gains. Um and the thing is, like when you when you zoom out and look at this, the totality of this research, the that first study by Reichman was very very striking. They found a, a significant linear relationship between cholesterol intake and hypertrophy. Uh, the figures look pretty striking. They found relationships for both hypertrophy and strength. 
And the thing is, every other paper on the subject that has been published since then is generally positive. Um, So, you know, it it ranges from acute studies that find... um, they find that things like muscle protein synthesis are acutely elevated by whole egg consumption to a greater extent than egg white consumption. Uh, there's that other Reichman study that was only published as an abstract that found more hypertrophy and greater strength gains with consumption of three eggs versus one. Uh, and, and there are the studies by Igley uh, and the most recent study by Bagheri and young people um, and, you know, they basically find not many significant differences between higher and lower cholesterol consumption or whole egg versus egg white consumption. But all of the non-significant differences that exist do kind of lean in favor of consuming higher cholesterol or whole eggs versus egg whites. And so it's one of those things where overall, I would say the literature is pretty positive, but not nearly as strong as that first study by Reichman would indicate. Um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I I think it's first worth noting why one might potentially hypothesize that higher cholesterol intake might be beneficial for hypertrophy. Um, So there are three mechanisms I've seen proposed. So one is that cholesterol increases cellular rigidity. So your your cell membranes, uh, what do they call it in A&P? A, a liquid mosaic? Isn't that what they say? I think so. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, there's you, you have your uh, phospholipids and a bunch of proteins and various carbohydrates, and they can all just kind of like flow around and just kind of vibe. Uh, and the more cholesterol that is inserted into the cell membrane, it basically decreases how well everything else can flow and that increases the rigidity of the membrane. Uh, And so if you are someone who thinks that muscle damage might be associated with hypertrophy, uh, if you increase cellular membrane rigidity of the sarcolemma, that should uh, at least to some degree promote more sarcolemmal disruption and tissue damage. Um, So if you think that there is a relationship between damage and hypertrophy, uh, greater cholesterol intake might increase muscle damage, which then might increase hypertrophy. I'm pretty skeptical of that explanation. Uh, Another proposed mechanism by which cholesterol might improve hypertrophy uh, is the opposite. So increasing rates of cellular repair after damage. So um, when tissues are damaged, uh, cholesterol is deposited to then help stabilize the area that was damaged and, and aid in repair. Um, and so like, you know, maybe you can have your cake and eat it too. You can get more damage and you can also repair the damage quicker and bada bing, bada boom, you get huge. Um, I think that the, um, so it, it would be relatively easy to study whether higher cholesterol intakes do, um, help with damage repair after training. Like you could put people through a very strenuous eccentric training protocol, give one group of people, you know, a protein supplementation, a protein supplement post-training, give another group of people, uh, a supplement with protein intake and also cholesterol that they consume post-training and basically look to see whether, uh, various markers of muscle damage, decline quicker in the group that also consume the cholesterol. So that's something that could be studied. It sounds at least somewhat plausible to me, but I'd, I'd like to see direct research on it uh, personally. 
Uh, and then the other proposed mechanism for higher cholesterol intakes promoting hypertrophy is that they could help with the production of what are called lipid rafts. Um, and so this, this is a direct quote from old Wikipedia. Uh, it has been proposed that lipid rafts are specialized membrane microdomains, which compartmentalize cellular processes by serving as organizing centers for the assembly of signaling molecules, allowing a closer interaction of protein receptors and their effectors to promote kinetically favorable interactions necessary for the signal transduction. So basically the idea being that... Um, like you have a bunch of receptors on the outside of like really every cell of your body that includes muscle cells. The idea being that lipid rafts are basically an area where a lot of that stuff could be done in the same place. Uh, and cholesterol is one of the molecules that helps hold those lipid rafts together. Um, the Wikipedia page also said that, uh, the very existence of lipid rafts is controversial, <laughs> that not everyone agrees that they even exist. So I'm also putting that in uh, in the I'm skeptical category. So, you know, ultimately, I think that the if if cholesterol intake helps with muscle damage repair and that might help people, you know, recover better, train a little bit harder, um, you know, there, there's research from McMaster showing that um, if you have high levels of muscle damage, the muscle protein synthesis taking place might be, you know, more directed towards repairing damage versus actually, you know, building more contractile tissue and growing your muscles. So, you know, if, if this helps uh, more quickly and maybe more efficiently repairing muscle damage, that might allow the muscle protein synthesis that takes place to be kind of used more efficiently, or, you know, maybe you do actually get, uh, uh, consistent increases in muscle protein synthesis as, uh, as that one acute study from, from 2017 by Van Vliet would indicate. So, you know, th there are some potential mechanisms here. I wouldn't consider any of them slam dunks personally. Um, and I would want to see the damage repair potential mechanism be directly studied first personally. Uh, but you know, basically there is, there is some degree of potential mechanistic rationale here. Um, so my my general take on this body of research, uh, as I indicated before, is that, you know, there's one very striking study and then there's a lot of other either acute studies with generally positive results or longitudinal studies with uh, generally positive but not particularly eye-popping results. So I would say that... Um, Number one, it's hard to say whether these results are driven by cholesterol per se uh, or other things in egg yolks. So, you know, again, there's a shitload of cholesterol in egg yolks, but there's also a shitload of other stuff in egg yolks. Um, and, you know, it could just be something else in egg yolks that might be driving some of these things we're seeing. Might not be cholesterol per se. Uh, jury's still out on that because, again, cholesterol intake and egg intake are are currently married together in that body of research because, you know, up to this point, you want to, you want to have people consume more cholesterol, you give them egg yolks. Um, you know, that's just the experimental model that's typically used. Second thing is, uh, like I said, the results are positive overall, but it's noteworthy that the strongest evidence in favor of cholesterol promoting hypertrophy comes from the first study ever published in that area, uh, which again was, was a, um, like quasi observational study, like they didn't 
they didn't proactively manipulate cholesterol intake. Like that's something they just kind of found after the fact. Uh, and that's noteworthy because there's a, um, like there, there's something in the literature, uh, called the first finder effect where basically in any body of literature, um, generally the first study that finds a particular effect, the magnitude of the effect tends to be larger than the rest of the literature, basically once a body of literature starts developing. Uh, and the reason for that is mostly that, um, you know, if you're doing novel work and you're like, hey, these two things might be associated or like thing A might cause thing B and you do a study and you have a very, very large positive striking result, then that's going to get people excited. People are going to take notice and they're going to say, hey, we should research this as well. Um, and uh, if you either don't get a significant result or if it's just like, you know, kind of a weak result, maybe you don't even publish it. Or maybe if you do publish it, it doesn't really get much traction. Um, so basically just like, Bodies of research are more likely to grow up around a first very large positive effect. Um, and things that that don't really pan out are just less likely to get published in the first place. Um, so we might be seeing the first finder effect here where Reichman, you know, through no fault of his own, found that cholesterol maybe had a larger impact on hypertrophy than it actually does, you know, just purely due to to sampling variability, whatever. Um, and maybe it does have a positive effect, but not as large as the original Reichman study would indicate. Um, so that that's a second thing to point out. Third thing is, um, or kind of my third take here, is I do think dietary cholesterol might be a meaningful ergogenic. But again, I'm skeptical about whether the effects are particularly large, certainly as large as the original Reichman study would indicate. Um, I, I do kind of think that if you, you know, go from consuming basically no dietary cholesterol to a little bit of dietary cholesterol, a moderate amount, um, that might help with hypertrophy and maybe strength gains. There's nothing in the literature to this point that indicates that it wouldn't. And there's enough positive or kind of positive results and a complete lack of negative results. Uh, so, so I do think that it might be somewhat beneficial. But again, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't bet the farm on it being as big of a positive as say like creatine is, uh, for example. Um, let's see. A another thing to note is we don't know, and I think this is important. We don't know what the dose response relationship looks like. Um, between hypertrophy and cholesterol intake if we assume that there is one. Uh, and I think this is important because uh, the first Reichman study that found that relatively striking linear relationship, the highest uh, cholesterol intake in that study was 10.2 milligrams per kilogram. Um, so, you know, you, you can't necessarily extrapolate past that in that study. Uh, the follow-up study comparing zero egg, one egg, and three eggs per day um, the highest cholesterol intake in that study was 14 milligrams per kilogram, and they found that that might be beneficial. Higher intakes than that haven't been studied. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where we have some degree of evidence that up to, you know, 10, maybe 14 milligrams per kilogram of dietary cholesterol per day is potentially beneficial for hypertrophy and maybe strength gains. 
And the thing is, we don't know how far that extends to. You know, it could be that, like, you get above 15, you don't get anything else from it. It, it, I'm not saying that I think this, but it is at least possible that maybe with very high levels of dietary cholesterol intake, there is a much more noteworthy hypertrophy response or, or... it, it promotes hypertrophy to a to a meaningfully greater extent. The thing is, we can't say that from the literature, not because there's evidence saying that even higher intakes aren't beneficial, but just simply even higher intakes haven't even been studied. Um, so we, we currently have no idea what the dose-response relationship looks like past about 14 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, fifth thing that I'll just say personally um, is that I've noticed that my training tends to go better when I'm eating a fair amount of eggs. Uh, You know, that's an anecdote. N equals one, do with it as you will. Um, But yeah, I do tend to find that I recover from training better and generally have better results when I'm eating a fair amount of eggs, which I'll note, um, you know, just is kind of a check your bias uh, situation here. I wish that weren't true. Because I don't particularly like eggs. I don't want people to come out, like, come away from this segment thinking Greg is shilling for big eggs because he loves eggs and he wants this to be true. I don't actually like eggs very much. Uh, and I I actually, like, meaningfully eat more eggs than I want to because of how much better it makes my training feel. Um, but again, you know, don't put too much weight on that. That is purely my N equals one observation. Uh, And the last thing I'll just say kind of to wrap this up is the relationship between dietary cholesterol and serum cholesterol levels and or heart disease um, probably isn't as direct as people used to say up until recently. Um, I think either the American Heart Association or the American Medical Association or the World Health Organization, one of those or maybe all of them. Or NASA. Or NASA, who knows? Yeah, but but like one one or multiple of those big organizations have recently come out in the last two or three years and basically said like, "Hey, look, saturated fat probably still not great, but dietary cholesterol doesn't actually affect your blood lipids as much as we thought it did." Anyway, don't take my word for it. I'm not a fucking cardiologist. Uh, If you're worried about dietary cholesterol intake, talk to your doctor. You know, go to the American Heart Association, go to the World Health Organization, whatever, like trust, trust their take on that. I, again, my, what I have seen indicates that dietary cholesterol probably isn't particularly deleterious for heart health, uh, unlike serum cholesterol, but, you know, talk to a doctor about it. Yeah. If memory serves, I remember not long ago, one of the more recent rounds of the U.S. government dietary guidelines they if memory research if memory serves i think they just removed their cholesterol recommendation it used to be like hey limit it to no more than 300 milligrams per day or Mm -hmm. something like that and i i swear i i I think they just removed it and didn't say anything just like (laughs) i i I feel like they were just like if we just don't make any statement about it, we don't necessarily have to say either way whether or not it's impactful. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it, in one of the rounds of dietary guidelines that comes out every five years, it just like vanished. And I think they hoped nobody was going to ask them about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did some fact checking. They, they didn't want to wind up with egg on their face, pun intended. Oh, man, that's a good joke. That's a really good joke. <laughs> um, 
So a little bit of fact checking. I wouldn't say that you are a propagator of fake news. Oh God. Um, Is is it the shrimp? Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. Like I said, it's, it's not fake news. Uh, Eggs boiled 100 gram serving. Uh, Google's telling me 373 milligrams. And for shrimp, for 100 grams of cooked shrimp, we're talking about 189. So that, that's still a, a high okay, cholesterol yeah. food. Um, but but definitely eggs are are seem to be very much in a class of their own in terms of reasonable serving size and the, uh, the cholesterol provided. Yeah. Okay, now, Greg, we're... Uh, we're pretty far into the episode here, so we've got some Q and A's to do. do. Do you have uh, Do you have any feelings about cholesterol? I I I feel like I'm not just out on a limb, but very close to the end of a limb, uh, because like nutrition's not my thing, and cholesterol is kind of like a sub area of nutrition that is even less my thing. So, as someone who knows things about nutrition, uh do you think that I'm just like massively off base? No, I mean, I'll be honest. Cholesterol is not something that's ever gotten me super excited. Um, It's not something I've ever looked, looked into that closely. Uh, There was once a time where I I was kind of more interested in, uh, you know, how does dietary cholesterol actually impact blood cholesterol levels? And, you know, back in the day, 80s and 90s they would treat it like just a very simple one-to-one ratio you put more in all of a sudden your blood's full of cholesterol and, and certainly they've changed their tune about that but that was as far as i ever took it. i never back when i was really into the whole nutritional biochemistry stuff especially like during undergrad when i would do a lot more studying than a normal sane person would do mm-hmm. i was really into it but you know, when, when it comes to hypertrophy and strength, I've really never looked into that uh, into that particular connection. But uh, anyway, like I was saying, we've got Q&As coming up here. Uh, Let's do it. We got to be quick. We got to be short to the point with responses because we're running way high on time. All right. So, Eric, your first question is from Matt, who asks, is there a simple way to judge if I'm gaining too much fat on a bulk? Uh, how much weight gain is too much? Because I feel like I gain more muscle at the start of a bulk and more fat towards the end. Uh, and I gain weight much faster at the start in the past. I haven't considered metabolic adaptation really. So could this be why I don't really think it's a a metabolic adaptation thing. Um, but you know, the, the, the question, is there a simple way to judge if you're gaining too much fat on a bulk? Uh, you know, I think it really comes down to your goals and your preferences. So like when it comes to how much is an acceptable amount of fat gain during a bulk, ultimately that's going to depend on where you feel your best, where you perform your best and where you look your best, um, and and kind of how you prioritize those different things in a bulk. So, uh, an optimal bulk for a defensive lineman is going to look very different from the optimal bulk for a natural bodybuilder. Uh, these are very, very different things. Now, general advice for rate of weight gain, um, if you want to push the pace a little bit, and let's say you've got plenty of weight you're trying to put on, you're not trying to gain that last you know, two pounds to hit your genetic ceiling, but you're getting started, or you think you've got a solid 20, 25 pounds to gain, maybe gaining 0.25 to 0.5% uh, of your body weight per week, that's on the more aggressive end of the spectrum. 
if you are really conservative about it, you really want to minimize fat gain, or you just really don't have that that far to go before you hit your kind of genetic ceiling in terms of lean mass, then you want to go slower with it. So 0.25% of body weight per week or, or, or much lower, depending again on your tolerance for fat gain. But, you know, I, I don't think it's easy to give a, a metric, uh, about, you know, how much is, is too much. It really just comes down to what is the purpose of this bulk and what is our tolerance for, for fat gain. Uh, of course, the quicker you go, the more likely you're going to see a higher percentage of, of weight gained as fat rather than lean mass. So that's something to keep in mind. If you're very uh, concerned about the relative proportion of fat gain, I would advise going as slow as you can essentially tolerate. You know, So the slower, the better. But ultimately, if we're going too slow, then we're not making big strides toward the goal. So it's the same thing with weight loss. You know, Weight loss, we generally see better outcomes when we take it nice and slow. But you know, if you're losing a kilogram a year, you're probably not going to get to that end goal in a reasonable time frame. Uh, so one of the things that comes up here, like I said, I, I don't think metabolic adaptation has much to do with it. I mean, we do see metabolic adaptation going the other direction. So when we, when we try to ramp up calories, a lot of times we will see that total energy expenditure increases uh, to kind of accommodate for that that varies a lot from person to person. So th there have been some cool overfeeding studies where they really overfeed people in a highly controlled atmosphere so they can get really, really good numbers from the study. Some people have really large adaptive responses to overfeeding. And we know these people, right? So like when you were when, when you were in high school and your buddy would just like eat like crazy and never gain weight, like you probably know people that have a really, a really marked uh, adaptive response to overfeeding. Other people aren't quite as, as I mean, I, I don't know if you would even say it's lucky or unlucky. It really just depends on your set of goals. But other people, when they overfeed, they don't have a big adaptive response and they gain weight quite readily. The proportion of how much of that is fat mass or lean mass is going to depend. Do they have a good training stimulus in place to, uh, to promote muscle mass? How fast are they gaining the weight in general? So th there's a lot of factors to consider there. But one of the things, I don't think metabolic adapta adaptation is a a main concept to focus on here. But one of the things I would focus on is that a lot of people seem to suggest that staying leaner is going to enhance your hypertrophy. Um, and it seems that a lot of people hang their hat on this idea that insulin sensitivity is driving that relationship. And I, it, it's one of those things that I see talked about a lot, never with any supporting evidence behind it. it it's like, a lot of people have accepted this to be true, but whenever I'm like, oh, here's a discussion about this again, there are not a lot of links being shared to actual evidence. So, you know, I've seen a lot of people with really high body fat putting on a ton of muscle. Uh, for example, any sumo athlete, any offensive lineman, any defensive lineman, the idea that having high body fat is going to necessarily super heavyweight powerlifter. Any super heavyweight powerlifter. Every lifter. super heavyweight strongman. Yeah, I mean every super heavyweight weightlifter. Yeah, I mean fat-free mass index generally correlates with body fat percentage. My boy Lasha is not shredded. I, if if you look at all of the biggest individuals on the planet with the most fat-free mass, they tend not to be shredded. Okay, and shredded people are where we find the high insulin sensitivity. So I, I don't understand, I haven't seen a solid basis uh, f for this uh, particular contention. I haven't seen 
anybody really put together a a really solid argument to support this. Um, but what I have seen is that my eyes tell me that there's a <laughs> if you if you were to take a random sample of the most muscular athletes on the world in the world, they're generally not going to have a low body fat percentage. So sometimes I see people get wrapped up in this idea and they say, do I need to get really shredded so I can do a successful bulk? And I just don't see any reason to believe that that would be the case. I mean, when it comes to cutting before bulking, it's not about insulin sensitivity. And by the way, yes, muscle cells will become more, more responsive to insulin, but so will fat cells, you know, when we get leaner. So, uh, it's not this like one directional unidirectional relationship where if you get shredded, all of a sudden, all nutrients are going to go to muscles because of insulin sensitivity. I mean, adipose cells, adipocytes, they like insulin too. They respond to it as well. So, uh, the, the only reason you would really want to get lean before a bulk is because you don't want to spend your time bulking while having a high body fat percentage, either due to health reasons, performance reasons, or body image reasons. But, uh, but yeah, the, uh, in terms of deciding how much fat is too much fat during a bulk or what is a, an appropriate body fat percentage to maintain during your bulk, it's completely up to your preferences and completely up to, to what you're comfortable with and what your, uh, what your priorities are. Can I just drop in an anecdote in here? Sure. So first statement is not anecdotal. Uh, there is... There is some research looking at um, like post-exercise or either post-exercise or post-protein consumption uh, rates of muscle protein synthesis in uh, relatively lean versus relatively not lean uh, untrained people that tends to indicate that like people who are who are quite obese um, might not have as much might not have as large of a muscle protein synthetic response, um, which might be related to just kind of like general poor health. Um, it might be kind of comparable to, to I think what we've talked about in older people before, uh, anabolic uh, insensitivity. So um, one of the things that I've noticed in clients that I've trained previously, people who are untrained, um, relatively obese, and probably not in great health, is that some of them do tend to do better starting out in not like a particularly large deficit, but like a fairly small deficit. Because one of the things that that we do tend to see is that when folks are overweight, when they start losing weight, they don't have to be in a particularly large deficit and don't have to lose a ton of weight before a lot of markers in metabolic health do tend to start improving like fairly quickly. Um, and so, you know, take off even maybe just like five or 10 pounds. And then suddenly they start responding to training quite a bit better. Uh, and one of the things that differs between uh, an obese, untrained person and say a sumo wrestler is the sumo wrestler is doing a shitload of exercise. Um, probably does still have relatively decent insulin sensitivity. Uh, if they have high levels of baseline inf inflammation, it's probably not necessarily due to their obesity, but more just because they're training like a goddamn madman. Uh, so one of the things I've noticed is that if if you start with like a relatively obese, probably not in great shape person, um, 
it might not be a terrible idea to start with a deficit for maybe like two or three months, just lose a little bit of weight, and then they might respond better to training from there. But for someone who's currently training and has been training for a period of months or years, that's probably not something you need to worry about all that much. That, that That's just my opinion and an observation that I've had. So is it about getting to a specific body fat level or simply just being in a deficit? Uh, I, I think it's more about just being in a deficit. Um, oh man, the, uh, so some of the, so I, I'm going to assume that kind of the, the anabolic sensitivity stuff probably correlates with just general metabolic health to some degree. Uh, and the research on that I've seen tends to indicate that if someone can reach an approximately five to 10% reduction in body weight or body fat, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be perfectly metabolically healthy, but that's like the magnitude of weight loss you need to see for things to really start improving in a pretty marked way. Um, so yeah, like for, for someone who's, who's fairly obese, they don't have to get lean before things start improving. Like once they're in a deficit for a little bit and lose a little bit of fat, a lot of those markers in metabolic health do tend to start improving relatively quickly. Uh, and, and my observation has been in folks like that, you get them to that state and then they do start responding to training quite a bit better. Okay. So we're really talking about kind of two slightly different things here. So uh, if someone is completely untrained and they're in a state of, of poor metabolic health, uh, generally speaking, and their long-term goal is to be big and strong and lean and all those things, then of course I could understand the first phase being, let's get into training, you know, let, let's kind of develop a base here. And while we're doing that, let's get in a caloric deficit, lose a little bit of fat and get to a state where we just have better overall cardiometabolic health. I think that definitely makes sense. But that's a very different thing from saying that having a high body fat percentage uh, is necessarily prohibitive of increased muscle gains. Um, you know, those are two very different concepts. And, you know, I, I think the issue is a lot of people are starting to suggest that, you know, having a high body fat percentage in and of itself necessarily uh, prohibits you from maximally gaining uh, lean body mass during a bulk. And I just don't really see a, a lot of evidence to support that. And I think more importantly, that doesn't seem to really be compatible with uh, just real world observations. Uh, you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, when you look at the drug free human beings with the most fat free mass and the most lean body mass, those are individuals that tend to have high body fat levels. So if, you know, a certain threshold of body fat percentage was necessarily prohibitive of, you know, allowing gains in lean body mass, then you would expect things to look a little bit differently when you look around at the super heavyweight lifters of the world and the sumo athletes of the world and, you know, everybody that competes in a sport where they have a high body fat percentage and also happen to have an absolute enormous amount of fat-free tissue and lean body mass and, and muscle mass itself. All right, moving on, we've got a question from Jack Ryan on Facebook. Uh, when we talk about CNS or central nervous system fatigue, what are we talking about mechanistically? Is there anything we can specifically do to improve CNS recovery? Why do I always get sick uh, if I'm overly fatigued in terms of my CNS? Yeah, so um, th there are a couple different things we might be interpreting as CNS fatigue, um, but I think that most of it's not... Uh, 
I, I think that most of what people interpret as CNS fatigue might not necessarily be what a researcher would interpret as CNS fatigue. Um, so if we're talking about the CNS, the central nervous system, that is the brain and spinal cord. And so when we're talking about the central nervous system and, you know, effects on force output and performance, you're, you're looking at things like motor drive uh, from the motor cortex, uh, you know, that does go down when you're acutely fatigued from training. Um, you might potentially be dealing with poor transmission of motor impulses from the motor cortex to corticospinal neurons, uh, or you could potentially be dealing with poor transmission of motor impulses from corticospinal neurons to peripheral motor nerves, uh, which you know are, are then what actually innervate the muscles. Um, so any of those things you could term CNS fatigue. And when people talk about CNS fatigue, they're generally talking about kind of generally feeling shitty and performing poorly and it being something that kind of accumulates over time where, you know, even on their off days, if they take two or three days off, they still don't feel good. Their performance is going down. Uh, and all of those things that would actually kind of be CNS fatigue don't really seem to behave like that. Um, so if you do do some in <laughs> do do, if you do some intense exercise, uh, you know, you can see some decreases, especially in like central motor drive. Um, but generally like that's pretty well recovered within, within hours and generally within minutes. So that's not really, um, a prime candidate for what most people interpret as CNS fatigue. Um, so then uh, we could look at some peripheral factors that might be contributing. So uh, when we talk about peripheral factors contributing to fatigue, we're generally dealing with failures of excitation contraction coupling. Um, so, you know, essentially you could be dealing with fewer neurotransmitters being released from motor nerves uh, into the synaptic cleft. Um, you could be dealing with a situation where it requires greater stimulation from the motor nerve to get the sarcolemma of the muscle fibers to depolarize in the first place. Uh, or you could be dealing with a situation that even when the sarcolemma depolarizes and you get an action potential, uh, when that actually reaches the sarcoplasmic reticulum, you wind up with less calcium release. Or you could wind up uh, in, in a situation where you have decreased sensitivity to calcium or just something else going on in the muscles that are that that's um, negatively affecting the interactions of your contractile proteins, your actin and myosin. Um, and so I, I think that there's probably some stuff going on there that people interpret as CNS fatigue. So let's start with, with some peripheral factors that people might be interpreting as CNS fatigue. So there is a phenomenon termed low frequency fatigue that I think is a pretty decent candidate for what people might interpret as CNS fatigue. Um, and so what low frequency fatigue is essentially is um, if you have like a neuromuscular lab setup, what you can do is you can look and see how hard muscles will contract if you uh, basically stimulate them a little bit uh, versus when you stimulate them a lot. And what low frequency fatigue is is essentially you see a decrease in muscle force output when the muscles are stimulated a little bit, but when you stimulate them a lot, they are still capable of contracting with their maximum possible force. Um, 
And so how you would probably perceive that is uh, you go to the gym, your warmups feel heavy, your working sets move slow. Um, but, you know, if someone put a gun to your head and said like, hey, you have to hit within 3% of your, you know, previous one rep max, you could, but like everything just feels harder than it otherwise should. Um, so that that's probably how you would kind of feel and interpret low frequency fatigue. Um and there are several things that could cause that. It seems to mostly be calcium driven. Um, so, you know, just a very, very basic background about how muscle contraction works. Uh, you get a motor impulse, depolarizes the sarcolemma that goes down to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. You get calcium release into the into the muscle fiber. Um that interacts with troponin, tropomyosin. Now your actin and myosin can interact and muscle contraction takes place. That's all good. Uh, so ultimately you need uh, calcium release to basically allow actin and myosin to interact. And the more calcium release you get, the the more, basically the more actin and myosin can come in contact with each other to you know, contract and and cause muscle contraction. Uh, so if you get impaired calcium release, that can, uh, or if you get impaired calcium release with any given kind of submaximal level of muscle stimulation, you wind up with low frequency fatigue. So you get maximum stimulation. You still you still can get enough calcium into the muscle cell for maximum contractions to take place, but basically it takes a greater stimulus to get a particular amount of calcium going on in there. So a couple things could contribute to that. One of them could be localized glycogen depletion. So if you get, um, if if the glycogen depletes around the proteins that pump calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum, uh, then basically at any time that fiber would twitch, you would get less calcium being released each time. Um, so that could be a factor, but that's probably not a main factor in what people would interpret as CNS fatigue, because assuming you're eating a decent amount of carbs, that should more or less be sorted out within about 24 hours of a workout. Um, muscle damage can be a contributor here. So uh, if your sarcolemma is disrupted, you you basically propagate action potentials less efficiently, um, which could result in less calcium release. So that could be a factor. Uh, so, you know, if you're experiencing something that feels like CNS fatigue after a particularly high volume training cycle or after an increase in training volume, you might just be dealing with muscle damage uh, and muscle contraction not working as well because of that. Um, and, and then what I think, what I think kind of one of the more important factors is and what the researchers tend to think one of the more important factors is, is, um, when you do repeated maximal contractions, uh, basically you just wind up with a bunch of calcium within the muscle fibers, uh, and through a feedback mechanism, which I'm not even going to pretend like I fully understand if you already have a, a lot of calcium present within the muscle fiber, uh, every time, uh, depolarization happens, your sarcoplasmic reticulum releases less additional calcium into the muscle fiber than it otherwise would. Um, and so essentially like that seems like something that might take, uh, hours to days to resolve. 
Uh, and another factor is that when you're when you're dealing with a lot of maximal contractions, you can get an accumulation of inorganic phosphate within the muscle fiber that interferes with the interactions between actin and myosin. So it can mechanistically decrease force output. And something else that's theorized is that when you have both of those things going on, just a fair amount of calcium hanging out in the muscle fiber and a fair amount of inorganic phosphate, they can kind of link up and form calcium phosphate, um, which is just like a bitch uh, and seems like it, it probably needs to be disassociated again before either the phosphate can be removed as a waste product or recombined with ADP or creatine uh, and the calcium can be you know pumped back out of the muscle fiber. Uh, and that might be a process that takes you know several days. So th those are all local factors that could um, increase, basically make everything feel harder, make everything feel heavier that you might be interpreting as CNS fatigue. Um, and then another thing that would act more centrally, but it wouldn't necessarily be due to um, like decreases in central motor drive or anything like that. So it, it kind of like a chicken versus egg thing um, is there is a model of overtraining referred to the cytokine hypothesis of overtraining, which to be clear, now we understand that like these things do happen, but they're not like the only factor contributing to overtraining. So th this has kind of been subsumed into kind of larger, grander theories of overtraining, but but this is something that contributes. So when you train hard, um, you get an inflammatory response and you get an immune response in response to the inflammatory response. And monocytes will release pro-inflammatory pro cytokines, including interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha, or TNFA. Um, and all of those things can promote further systemic inflammation. Uh, and so that, that can do a couple things. One, uh, it can make you just feel more lethargic and fatigued. So just when you in general are more inflamed, uh, if you have like subclinical uh, inflammation that's affecting your CNS, that makes you feel like shit. Uh, and also interleukin-1-beta is the cytokine that seems to do a lot of the heavy lifting to make you feel like shit when you're sick. Um, so like when you're sick, your body doesn't want you doing a bunch of stuff and burning a bunch of energy because it's trying to preserve that energy for your immune system to have enough energy to fight off with whatever's infecting you. Uh, and so interleukin-1-beta is released and that makes you feel like shit and makes you feel lethargic and not feel like doing much. Um, and so like if, if you're dealing with like high cytokine levels in response to maybe some degree of overreaching or overtraining, you get that same pro-inflammatory cytokine interleukin-1-beta, uh, and that can make you feel very lethargic. Um, and it, and it, again, it wouldn't necessarily impair performance if you were maximally motivated to perform, but it can certainly make you not be maximally motivated to perform. <laughs> um, and w one of the things this question noted as well is like, when I'm experiencing CNS fatigue, I feel like I always get sick. Uh, and so I think that that some of the cytokine hypothesis stuff is going on here because one of the other effects is when you're dealing with uh, especially chronically high levels of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that can um, it, it initially like ramps up 
kind of activation of your immune system, which then kind of fatigues it. Uh, and as a response, you'll be more likely to deal with head colds and, and things of the like. So, you know, not necessarily getting super sick, but just kind of feeling really cruddy. Um, just because like, you know, slight bacterial infections, you might have been able to more easily beat off before. Uh, phrasing, whatever, we can leave it in. Uh, that you might have been able to defeat before, you know, can now kind of take a bit of a greater foothold within your upper respiratory tract and uh, you just feel kind of like shit. Um, so I, I kind of think that when people talk about CNS fatigue, they're probably thinking about a combination of high pro-inflammatory cytokine levels as a result of just high training volume and muscle damage and, and the like, uh, and probably some of the low frequency fatigue, which is more of a like local peripheral thing and not necessarily CNS related at all. Um, so I, I think that those are the, the two biggest things going on in the phenomenon that people interpret as CNS fatigue. Uh, and if you want to do something about it, it's pretty straightforward. Sleep plenty, uh, eat plenty, especially carbs. Again, if, if some localized glycogen depletion is the issue. Uh, and something else that seems to help quite a bit is continuing to exercise, but make it easy and low intensity. Um, if you just sit around like a knot on a log, you will... Uh, eventually feel better, but you'll feel better a little bit quicker if you're still doing something, but the something you're doing isn't particularly hard. All right. Are we doing more? Uh, yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some rapid fire questions for me. Let's uh, do it. Just to make sure we get plenty of answers here. Um, okay. So I, I got a bunch of different questions. I think, I think all of these are, if not all of them, most of them came from the Stronger by Science Facebook group. So one person asked, uh, is there any benefit to cycling your creatine? Uh, quick answer is no. So it, it is true that supplementing with typical doses of creatine can reduce uh, short-term production of creatine. Our endogenous creatine production goes down a little bit. Normally we make like a gram a day. And so if we are consuming five grams a day, that, that's naturally going to go down a little bit. But the good news is that endogenous production kicks right back into gear when you stop taking creatine and creatine levels kind of go back down to normal. So uh, the only reason you would ever really cycle creatine would be if you're just tired of taking it and uh, you, or maybe you're tired of spending money on it. So you just run out and don't buy more. But, um, you know, there's really no inherent advantage to cycling creatine. Uh, another question was, what's my take on supplementing with leucine at every meal to optimize muscle protein synthesis? Um, Jorn Tromelin, uh, Dr. Tromelin, uh, wrote an article for Stronger by Science back in the day about protein. Uh, he talked a little bit about that as like a speculative method. Um, and the idea was that the post-meal increase in leucine uh, is pretty important for initiating maximal rates of protein synthesis. And, uh, you know, if we have a really big dose of protein in a mixed meal, sometimes that uh, digestion and absorption rate of that protein is so prolonged that we don't get that immediately, you know, huge spike in leucine. I would say it, it's probably unnecessary for the vast majority of people if you're eating plenty of protein throughout the day and, and kind of splitting it up between three to five approximately equal sized meals. Uh, you're probably getting what you need out of your dietary protein. But, you know, if you're someone that exclusively eats slow digesting proteins or really low leucine protein sources, or you're just not getting enough 
total protein in general. There might be some modest theoretical benefit of throwing some leucine in with those meals. But for, for me, it seems like the type of intervention that would be a lot of effort for either a modest theoretical benefit or a, an uncertain theoretical benefit. You know, it, it's not like a high probability, huge magnitude effect that you can absolutely bank on by, by going that route. Uh, another question. One uh, other thing to note, leucine yeah. tastes like shit. Does it really? I've oh, never yeah. tried to supplement with it. It's fucking terrible. Yeah, so when you're at BulkSupplements.com, maybe get something with some flavor to mix with that. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, all right, so does the effect of citrulline malate decrease with continuous use? Um, I highly doubt it. I, d- I don't see any reason to believe why that would be the case. If anything, I would expect potentially uh, you know, repeated use might be a little bit more advantageous just from kind of chronically upregulating the capacity for nitric oxide production. But I see no reason to believe that, that we would see any kind of uh, habituation to the effect or reduction of the magnitude of that effect. Um, someone asked if you're supplementing with collagen to help repair soft tissue, um, do you think it would be uh, beneficial to antagonize the problem areas during your workouts to elicit an inflammatory response. So basically on top of that collagen supplementation, trying to also induce some inflammation. Um, and I, I think they were talking in the long form of the, the question about getting blood flow to the area. So I know Jason has talked about this. He's our, um, our physical therapist on the stronger by science coaching team. And when you're coming back from, you know, a, a tendon ligament, soft tissue type injury, um, you know, doing some, having a training stimulus as part of the plan is definitely a good idea. Um, it will stimulate blood flow to the area, but it doesn't seem that blood flow is really a limiting factor when it comes to the recovery of those tissues. Uh, and, you know, inducing inflammation isn't really the goal there. Um, we want to provide a mechanical stimulus that will facilitate that recovery process. It's not necessarily driven by inflammation or driven by blood flow. And I would say, you know, we don't want to be adding a a huge training stimulus that's going to overstress the tissues and cause a huge influx of of inflammation to the area. So uh, having a training stimulus, uh, mechanically stimulating those tissues is a good idea, but it's not necessarily uh, dictated by blood flow or inflammation. And of course, when when we answer this question, we're talking about after the acute injury phase. So you're going to have the acute injury and there's going to be plenty of that immediate inflammation and recovery that has to take place. And we're talking, you know, basically beyond that acute phase of recovery, once we're starting to look at the long term kind of chronic recovery phase after that acute inflammation is pretty much cleared up. Then you start adding in that training stimulus, and and it does have some positive effects. But again, it's not uh, it's not that we need to manually go out of our way to make sure blood's getting delivered to those tissues. Um, another question: This one is for, for body composition and performance purposes. What are my thoughts on behavior-based dietary interventions? So rather than just saying, "Hey, here's some macro targets: carb, fat, and protein to shoot for every day." you know, giving more behavior stuff. Let's minimize intake of these foods. Let's maximize intake of those foods. Uh, You know, try to get this much water per day. Um, Not only do I think they're fine, I think for a lot of people, they're better than just saying, hey, here's some macros to shoot for. Um, They're very, very useful, especially for people who aren't used to macro tracking and maybe 
aren't really don't have full buy-in when it comes to having that meticulous level of control over every single food that they're eating throughout the day. And so from a coaching perspective, the, the really cool thing about these behavioral types of adjustments or interventions is you think about the macro change you want to implement and you find a behavior adjustment to support that, right? So if you're thinking, I'd love to lower their carbs, but they're not really tracking and they're not weighing their food and all that stuff, then you think, well, what kind of behaviors might help us bring that change into the diet without specifically tracking carbs. So instead of doing a a reduction in their carb target, you say, let's increase some of these foods, let's minimize some of these refined sugars or added sugars. And you can basically give some little behavioral targets instead of numerical targets that essentially work to reduce carb intake. So for a lot of people, not only are they totally doable, but for a lot of people, they're actually better than, than focusing specifically on numbers. And then finally, Should athletes focused on cutting weight uh, in a caloric deficit be worried about micronutrient deficiency? Um, I mean, really, everyone should be mindful of potential micronutrient deficiency. Uh, It's something that you should keep an eye on, especially if you have really low calorie intake or if you have a very low degree of food diversity. If you only eat like a few main foods day in and day out, you want to take a look at those foods and make sure that you don't have any major gaps in your diet. So there are some people who just eat really, really simplistic diets who, you know, they're not even on low calories, but there might be some glaring gaps in their diet in terms of key micronutrients. So generally speaking, whether you're on high calories or low calories, you want to have a variety of food sources, a multivitamin, you know, based on the, the the studies out there, it's kind of hit or miss whether or not there's a benefit, but I don't see a lot of major downsides to having a well-formulated multivitamin in the mix, especially if you're not, if you're not enthusiastic about doing, you know, putting in that work and looking at your diet really objectively and kind of tabulating the different micros. Uh, I think having a multivitamin in the mix never hurts. Uh, of course, adequate fat intake to make sure that you're supporting the absorption of fat soluble vitamins. And then one thing that I do implement when my calories get really low and my fat gets really low, I think fish oil becomes more helpful in those scenarios because, you know, when you're talking about having 40, 45, 50 grams of fat in a given day, you want to be extra mindful of making sure that you're actually getting your essential fatty acids. Uh, So having some kind of a marine based omega-3 supplement can be extra helpful in those scenarios. Okay, that's my rapid fire. Got a bunch of questions answered. Greg, is there a particular question you'd like to uh, to work in here? Nah, I, I think we can push them off for the next the next uh, recording. Awesome. So ne- next episode, we'll probably have a bunch of a uh, bunch of Q and A's to make sure that we're staying on top of these. Uh, okay, now to play us out, we, we do have one additional question from Maddie Frazier in the uh, the Facebook group. This was one that we we put it in the to play us out segment because it's not necessarily super on topic. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of practical insight that listeners can glean from this. But the question is, given how you both train, what's the biggest animal you think you could fight with caveman technology and actually win that fight? Um, and we discussed this off the air, and, and I think we reached a pretty sensible consensus. So why, why don't you, you tell the good people what that is? Yeah, so the the downfall of this question is it didn't uh, put enough stipulations in place. So it just asked what the biggest animal we could fight was and not uh, where or how that fight would take place. Obvious answer, blue whale, but it's beached. Mm-hmm. You know, it's out of water. It's a whale out of water, as they say. 
Uh, easiest fight. Like, are you kidding me? You wouldn't even have to do anything. Um, so yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it doesn't even have to be beached. It could just be in the middle of the savannah. It's not getting back to the fucking ocean. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Like, it's the biggest animal that ever lived. So, like, of course that's what we would pick. An easiest fight in the world. Biggest that ever lived? I think so. Wow. It, uh, it is. It, it's easy to forget. Like, when you think of large sea creatures, you just think, oh, wow, I'm sure it's pretty big. But it's easy to forget exactly how huge they are. Oh, yeah. They're absolutely enormous. How, how long do they get? Because, like, I, I've been at those, like, natural history museums, and you see the little picture of, like, a school bus that looks yeah, like yeah. a little toy car. Uh, so the average length, not the biggest ever, but the average is about 24 meters or about 80 feet. Good grief. That is so big. Um, man, a lot of whales in the show lately, you know, a lot of whales, if you're a lifting fan and you like nutrition, but you also like whales, we've had you covered the last few weeks. Fun whale fact that we can just end with. I saw this headline. I wasn't going to do this for my good news segment just because, I feel like we have had a little bit too much whale content lately, um, but it was so. And this this is also right in my wheelhouse because it's something that's like very depressing that has like a slight silver lining. So uh, actually, this is this isn't even that depressing. Whatever, I'll just come out and say it. Uh, so it was it was a headline talking about how uh, whales in the Arctic. Uh, have recorded, you know, based on like patterns of whale song and like how much they're having sex and whatnot. Uh, scientists surmise that they are having uh, either their happiest or one of their happiest years on record um, because there aren't as many cruise ships going through because of COVID-19. And I was going to say that's sad because of COVID-19, but also like cruises fucking suck, dude. Like I get. I guess I'm breaking one of my cardinal rules in that I am yucking other people's yums. But mm. honestly, I can't think of anything that sounds more miserable than a cruise. Uh, <laughs> one, because I get very seasick, and two, it's just like, dude, if I'm going on vacation, uh, I want to see the people who I love and care about, and then be able to like severely limit my interactions with anyone else. At least as much as I want to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Being cramped up on a ship with like hundreds of other people uh, who are also just like hardcore in vacation mode. That sounds terrible. Yeah, I've never really thought about that, but but you do raise some interesting points. But I feel like that's an industry we just don't need to bring back after COVID. (laughs) We're going to lose all of our uh, all of our (laughs) cruise ship people. Um that does bring me to a bigger point, though. So you mentioned like the kind of is this good news? Is it bad news? The good news segment is on notice. Like it, it is on the on the verge of being cut because <laughs> we were looking at some good news stories and, and you, you shared this on Twitter. So people might already know this. <laughs> but like on one of those like uh, websites that curates good news stories, like I, I think this one was MSN. Yeah. Yeah. In like their good news section. Right. Yeah. I mean, right next to each other by, by the same author, uh, you'll know better than me. What were the headlines again? Uh, one of them is like why being optimistic might be a bad thing during COVID. And then the next one is like, uh, how to stay upbeat during COVID. (laughs) Yeah. It was like literally right next to each other. These completely contradictory stories. Yeah. I've got it. So, uh, first one is under the life heading 
happiness expert, colon, one technique for staying upbeat during the pandemic. Uh, and then right next to it, under the health and wellness subhead, behavior experts say that optimism could be unhelpful in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So, but, so it's like, here's how to be happy and here's how it's going to fucking ruin your life. Yeah. I mean, between those mixed messages and the fact that like most of the good news stories are just tragedies in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah like, like mine, it's like, oh, like happy for the dog. It pulled through. It's not dead. And guess what? Whales are going extinct. Uh, <laughs> and the dog's helping a little with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Stay tuned. We, we might have to cancel not just the good news segment, but the concept of good news. I, I think it's out on its way out. You know, I think we could stick with it and just embrace the darkness. <laughs> like we we could present these things that are framed as good news stories and then just talk about like how dark and insidious all of the underlying conditions that allowed them to be published are. Yeah, like we, we could take a like a very analytical approach to the good news segment and be like, let's really dissect this and, and let's get to some of the key principles here. <laughs> Uh, okay, good stuff. So um, I think that does it for this week's episode. Uh, as always, thank you for listening, and we will be back in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.